0: You're listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. This is a chronological Bible study going chapter by chapter, discovering Christ in all of Scripture. This is Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, local wars impact Abram's family. The kind of raiding, conquering, and making other city-states their vassals described in this chapter was part of the world of Abram's day and is a consequence of the fall but we're told about this particular skirmish because it impacted Abram and Lot's families. Occasionally, a vassal state, or in this case five states, rebelled against the suzerain, Keder Leomar, and his allies after 13 years of paying tribute or taxes. This tribute may have been paid in livestock or crops or manpower for projects, not necessarily silver. When this would happen, They would wait to see if there would be a military response. In this case, they miscalculated and there was retaliation a year later. Four kings gathered together against the five rebellious nations near some well-known tar pits in the Dead Sea Valley. First, they defeated some other groups along the way to these five kings. During the battle, some men fell into the tar pits, others fled to the hills. But here is the connection. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. So this tells us that Lot has now moved from pitching his tent near Sodom to living in Sodom itself. So because of his connection with the city, he was taken captive in the confrontation. He was guilty by association. If he had not been living in this wicked place, he would not have suffered along with them. Verses 13-16 to Abram rescues Lot One of the people who fled to the hills went farther and found Abram. He was well known in the region, and they probably believed he could do something about the crisis. He is called Abram the Hebrew, and this is the first use of the term in Scripture, and it means a descendant of Eber. This becomes the term that is used to describe his descendants, and one that they use themselves. Everyone knew where Abram lived, near the grove of terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite. Mamre and his two brothers were allies of Abram. When Abram hears the news, he responds right away. How would it have gone if the roles were reversed? Would Lot have risked his own life and the lives of those with him to rescue his uncle? Probably not, but Abram again proves to be the better man. He assembles 318 of his servants who were born in his house and who had been trained to fight as militia. The fact that they were born in his house added to their loyalty to him. Along with his allies, they pursued these kidnappers over 150 miles to north of Damascus. Before their captives... uh, could be taken farther away. He showed great military intelligence and strategy, dividing his forces at night and attacking them. It was successful. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. Verses 17-20. through 20, Two kings approach Abram. Following the military victory, Abram is approached by two kings the first one we already know about as he is the king of Sodom one of the places that was looted and emptied of people but had everything returned to him and he was coming to thank and reward Abram but he deferred to the superior status of the other man who arrived at the same time and delayed his request of Abram until after he had spoken the second man was introduced here and never mentioned again until David under inspiration, refers to him as a type of Christ. He is named Melchizedek and is referred to as a priest of God Most High and King of Salem, which means Jerusalem, Shalom, and Peace. Melch means King and Zedek means Righteousness. So Abram, the patriarch, recognizes Melchizedek as his superior and gives him a tenth of his spoils. He recognized that such a great victory with no loss of life was due to the blessing of God. He also knew that giving his wealth away didn't diminish it. Some comment on the tenth as a tithe even before the law was given, which may or may not be significant. The word tithe means tenth. They were required gifts of the Israelites later on, equivalent to a tax, but we must not think that that's all they gave. With all the other offerings required, it amounted to much more than that, closer to 23 to 25 percent, and tithes could not be redeemed or taken back. He also gave him bread and wine, which may foreshadow the Lord's Supper and Christ's sacrifice of his body and blood, although they aren't mentioned in that context in the New Testament. They were common staples. He was basically bringing nourishment to the troops. The verse seems to be dropped into the narrative in an odd place, but perhaps it was to remind Abram that it was God who gave him the victory, since right after that the king of Sodom offered him the spoils of war, which he refused. (coughs) Melchizedek refers to God as God Most High, or El Elyon. He is not worshipping a Canaanite deity, but the same God as Abram, since Abram calls God this also in verse 22. They both say that this God is possessor of heaven and earth. So in spite of Abram's military skill, Melchizedek reminds him that the credit for his victory is solely because of God. He says, And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek seems to come from nowhere. In a book known for long lists of genealogies, the lack of information about him is significant and that's one reason some believe he was a theophany, or pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, which we see in several other places in the Old Testament. However, there's no indication that Abram recognized him as such, and all treatments of this section in other parts of Scripture don't approach it that way. We'll treat both Psalm 110 and Hebrews 5 and 7 directly when we get to them, but now it's important to examine them to understand the significance of Melchizedek and how Jesus is like him. Psalm 110 is another place where Melchizedek is mentioned. The psalm is the most quoted verse in the New Testament. It was written almost a millennia later. This verse, verse 4, in Psalm 110, like the one in Genesis 14 about Melchizedek, also seems to have been dropped into the psalm. This psalm is widely accepted as being a messianic psalm, meaning it was prophesying about the coming Messiah. It describes an enthroned priest-king setting out in conquest of the world. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. After the law has been given, stating priests could only come from the tribe of Levi, God makes an unchangeable oath that someone is coming to be a priest with no link to Levi. David is implying that the Levitical priesthood is not good enough, it must be eclipsed. The law and the priesthood are tied together, so that if you take one away, then the other must go too. Hebrews 7.11 says, if perfection could have been obtained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law was given to the people, established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. D.A. Carson says sequence matters. In Genesis 14, Abraham encounters Melchizedek, a priest-king, before the law was given. Half a millennium later, the law states that the king and priest cannot be the same person. David then says there will be a priest-king, making the previous law in principle obsolete. Then Hebrews says we have a priest-king from the tribe of Judah, making the law and the old covenant obsolete. So Christ is referred to as having three offices, prophet, priest, and king. So in what sense is he a priest? As a priest, he represents men to God and God to men. He offers sacrifices. He serves God. He mediates between God and man in their covenant. Christ was, humanly speaking, from the tribe of Judah. It was the descendants of Aaron from the tribe of Levi who were the priestly line. In fact, any time a king tried to take on the priestly role, they were rebuked and or removed. Think of Saul and Uzziah. According to the law of Moses, a king could not be a priest and a priest could not be a king. So how then could Jesus be a priest and a king? It's only when we get to the New Testament that some light is shed on exactly how Christ is like Melchizedek. Hebrews 7.3 says that Melchizedek was without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So this makes it sound either like he is a theophany or the eternal Son of God or merely a reference to his appearance out of obscurity. He shows up in one scene in Scripture and then disappears just as quickly. We know nothing else about him, unlike all the other important persons in Scripture. So how is Christ like Melchizedek? Further, without beginning or end of days in relation to Melchizedek means we don't know anything about his lifespan. There is no mention of how long Melchizedek lived, as you also see in the genealogical lists. To the Jew, and then for our sake, it was important to know from which family line someone descended. It was how we would recognize the Messiah, who would be from the family line of Judah, and then a descendant of David. In relation to Christ, it refers to his eternal sonship. As God, he had um, no beginning and he will have no end. He is the eternal God, the ancient of days, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He lived before the stable in Bethlehem and will exist forever. So as such, his priesthood is far superior to the Levitical priesthood. Those priests could only continue for a while because death eventually overtook them. But Christ, who is the eternal Son, can be a priest forever because he will never die. He can continue to be the mediator between God and man, making intercession for us because of the sacrifice of himself, making atonement for us with his blood, so we can fight the good fight of faith because we have a better priest praying for us and blessing us. Verses 21-24, to 24, the king of Sodom makes a proposal. After Abram has his priorities refocused on God through Melchizedek, The king of Sodom speaks and offers to let Abram keep any spoils from the military conquest and he would just take the people back. But Abram refuses the offer. He swears an oath in the name of God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that he would not take anything from this king and then he gives the reason, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. He trusted that God would bless him if he did the right thing, and didn't depend on earthly kings to enrich him. He didn't want this wicked king to attribute Abram's wealth to his own generosity. For Abram's own servants, the meals they ate along the way was payment enough. All he agreed to accept from him was the share that was due to the men who went with him as his allies. Scarlet Threads So what scarlet threads or hints of Jesus Christ or an application to the gospel do we find in this chapter? Abram fought a physical battle courageously and won. We don't fight physical battles, but spiritual ones. First 1 Corinthians ten three to 5 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We are also to be courageous. Abram's household soldiers fought because they were loyal to him. We are related to Jesus through adoption, and we are loyal to him and bear the name of Christian. So we fight. And because of this spiritual battle, we need to be armed spiritually with the full armor of God and to fight as brave soldiers. 2 Timothy 2.3-4 says, Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Before Melchizedek came to Abram, he may have felt alone in the world of unbelievers, but now he met a kindred spirit who reminded him of spiritual priorities. Later, Elijah would feel alone, but God reminded him that there were 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. Paul uses this event to encourage the Romans that there will always be a remnant according to grace. And Melchizedek was called the King of Salem. King of Salem means King of Peace. Salem was an early name for Jerusalem. Christ is both the King of the Jews and the Prince of Peace. He gives peace in our hearts because we have peace with God, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything gained in the battle. He was giving the first fruits to God. Later, God established a tithe of 10% as a starting point for giving to support the Levites. In the New Covenant, they are never called tithes but offerings or gifts. If we have received some special grace or blessing, we ought to show our thankfulness in a sacrificial offering. Now no amount is specified as in Leviticus, but we are to be generous, not grudging in our giving. Some use the 10% as a starting point, however. The New Testament standards are stricter, or some would say higher or loftier. We give generously and sacrificially. We support the poor and ministers, what we give reflects our hearts, how we understand the blessing of God on our lives, and our requirement to live as stewards of all that he has given us. We know nothing about Melchizedek's genealogy or lifespan. The writer to the Hebrews in 7.3 describes this connection to Jesus as without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So Abram recognized Melchizedek as his superior, therefore he gave him a tithe. And in the Aaronic priesthood, the priests had to be replaced because death overtook them. But because Jesus lives forever, he remains our high priest. Therefore, the Aaronic priesthood has been replaced by the priesthood of Jesus in the order of Melchizedek. The king of Sodom offered Abram the spoils of war, but he refused to be enriched by him. He was grateful to get his family back and pay those who helped him. We should be grateful for God's mercies to us and not be greedy when God has given us victory. And we should recommend those who have worked with us in the fight. You've been listening to the podcast Bible Companion Series by author P.H. Thompson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and comment. Continue listening for Genesis chapter 15. May God bless the study of his word.